0: What is up, guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength of Physique with your hosts, Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are bettering themselves with fitness.
1: Welcome back Four. to All The Smoke on Strength of Physique. We got this the the, the one and only Dr. Martinez, a very special guest, um, an individual that it's been in my life for almost six years now, and it's been cool to you know, have you as a professor, a mentor, um, and I like to call you a, a friend for sure. Um, and I've always appreciated your practical side of things and not something or someone that always goes by the textbook, but again, has a lot of hands-on experience. Um, and I think that is taken for granted, especially in the science, uh, exercise science field. So Dr. Martinez, for those individuals who have no idea who you are, could you please go ahead and introduce yourself, sir?
2: Well, thank you for the, the brief introduction. Very kind of you to uh, show that you experienced some good, positive things with me in the classroom. It was, it was great having you in the classroom, Adam. And, and uh, Chris, thank you for, for having me with you guys today. So as Adam mentioned, my name is Nick Martinez. Um, I'm an instructor at the University of South Florida, and I teach both undergraduate and graduate courses there, and also do a little bit of research and some training on the side with combat athletes. And I have experience training other athletes as well, in addition to just general population. But really my, my primary focus outside of the university when it comes to training and my passion is is sort of the combat sport realm. Um, when I have a fight date, it's sort of exciting for me and gets me motivated and moving in the direction to to get guys ready for battle. So that's, that's what kind of inspires me on the training side of things. But um, I sort of get that same feeling being in the classroom, right? And it, it's, it's maybe even a, a little bit better or equal on some days, depending on the day, depending on the content. There's some days where, you know, as, as both of you guys, I'm sure we're doing presentations throughout your academic career, um, although it could be a little bit nerve wracking sometimes when you, when you overcome that challenge, it's, it's very rewarding to speak about things that you're passionate about and, and have others learn in the process. And so sometimes I get that same adrenaline rush in the classroom, but outside of that, that's, that's pretty much sums me up, man. I'm a, I'm a teacher, I'm a trainer. And, uh, that's, that's pretty much what I do. What, what is the biggest
0: thing that got you into combat, combat sports?
2: Yeah, so growing up, I was always physically active, as, as most um, kids are, and uh, played a lot of baseball and, and um, was involved just in watching a lot of boxing. I often just uh, mentioned that I grew up in a Cuban household, so it was all baseball and boxing every day. That was pretty much my education in, in sports. We watched other sports and we played other sports, but those were that was our bread and butter. And so um, growing up, I always, always had an affinity for boxing and for the sport. And as I got a little bit older, got more involved in sparring and getting my hands dirty a little bit in the, in the sport itself and, and just learning some of the, some of the uh, tricks of the trade, business side of it and just the physical side of it as well. So kind of grew up in that environment. And then it just manifested as I got older to, to actually working with the athletes. Yeah, and you mentioned both the physical – you mentioned the
0: physical side, but I think one of the topics that we want to get into is the mental side and how a lot of people don't really keep that in mind. And I wrestled, which is nothing like boxing uh, or any other combat sport. I mean, I guess it's similar, but uh, it's – I can only imagine what MMA fighters go through because wrestling was just so tiring. But mentally – what, what is mental toughness in that sport even? And I guess, how can you train for it? It's something that I've heard or seen a lot lately is we focus on mental toughness. We focus on improving the mental side of the sport and give us your approach on it.
2: Yeah, so I would say that the, the sport of wrestling is very similar to MMA and training for MMA. Um, you see a lot of wrestlers, obviously their ground game, they bring that into the, into the sport. Um, so a lot of the training components are, are similar, uh, with boxing, it's a little bit different because you're, you're on your feet, right? So if you take a boxer into the MMA ring, you're going to have scenarios to where maybe they don't know how to isometrically hold and breathe properly. And so they start to fatigue a whole lot quicker than you would because you have that knowledge and that foundation, right? Right. Um, But but the two sports, whether we're talking wrestling or even to boxing, it it could be classified as a as a combat sport Um, relative to the mental toughness aspect of it. We would say that that boxers really undergo um, a very similar process in terms of their training for mental toughness as any other sport. It is a it is a competition. Um, They need they need to be fierce competitors in the sense that they need to be able to deliver punishment. And they need to be able to withstand punishment as well. And we would say that that's really what separates boxers from other athletes, even some other combat athletes. Although we think of combat sports such as football, and there's most definitely pain involved in it, the pain in in boxing is, is a little bit different, right, to where you're getting punched repeatedly in the face or in the body. And hopefully you're a good enough boxer to where you're not getting punched repeatedly in the face or in the body. But it does happen. You have to be able to withstand that punishment and deliver it at the same time. Um, and another aspect of mental toughness for boxers is when you're delivering that punishment, is you have to be able to say, "Well, I see the individual is hurt. They're they're struggling. They're suffering. You can't you can't really be too kind-hearted in those moments. You have to capitalize on the opportunities, take advantage of them, and it's a hurt business. And so you have to be able to want to hurt the the opponent. And at the end of the day, it's it's all love." But, um, you know, in, in between the, the fight and the end of the fight, it's, there, there's no love given. You show no love. I think we lost Adam as well. But
0: uh, so mental toughness, uh, what courses do you teach at USF? I know stress management there's, is one, correct?
2: Yeah. So at the undergraduate level, I teach a, a course called stress management. Um, but it's more related to cardiometabolic issues that can manifest from having, uh, being exposed to stressors, right? As, as we say, everything is a stress. And so at the graduate level, I do teach a course called mental performance and stress management, which gets away from all the chronic cardiometabolic stuff and focuses primarily on strength and conditioning, right? And general population, improving their mental toughness for sport and exercise, it's not an exercise psychology class. It's definitely more related to mental performance and mental toughness. But we we combine the two concepts of mental performance and stress management because when you start to look at those two terms, what you see is that they're defined very uh, in a very similar way, right? So when we think of mental toughness as your ability to overcome challenges despite the despite uh, the adversity in front of you, and then with stress management, it's your ability to to cope with the demands of of uh, activities of daily living and just everyday life, and so there we we see there's there's a lot of similarities between those two definitions, and your ability to cope with demands and overcome challenges is really mental toughness and stress management. Yeah, and so you you won't fi- you won't find that too much um, to where people define them in this in a similar way, but but they are the same concepts at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, for mental toughness, what are some, I guess, uh, key ideas or key theories one should keep in mind? Or like some simple, like, for example, if you're trying to improve your physique, a very key thing to keep in mind is you should eat more protein, you should eat higher protein Mm -hmm. for mental toughness, uh, I guess, regard disregarding the sport what are some like key things that are really beneficial because I wasn't in your course for that one. Uh, but I think it's extremely important and I think a lot of athletes can benefit from it.
2: Yeah. So a lot of the stuff that I discuss relative to, to boxing can be extrapolated to every other sport and everyday life. And when we think of all the, the idioms or analogies that are used in everyday life, we see that they actually point back to boxing in a lot of ways. And in the classroom, I'm sure Adam has heard me say this quite a bit, but boxing is life and life is a fight in a lot of ways. Right. And so we hear these, these idioms a lot, such as you get knocked down. What do you do? Well, you, you get back up. Right. And sometimes when your back's against the ropes, you gotta, you gotta, you know, slip and roll with the punches. Okay. Um, Sometimes people give you a low blow, right? And you have to be able to respond in an appropriate way. So there's all these kind of analogies that we hear in everyday life. And and also just in sport itself, whether it's football, whether it's uh, bodybuilding, doesn't matter what it is, you often hear boxing terminology being used, you know? Um, So I, I like to kind of preface it with that. Do we have Adam back on with us? Yes, I think we do. Okay. Hey, are you losing me or no? Is, is my no, audio good and my video is good?
0: No, your video and audio is good. I think it was just on Adam's end.
2: Okay. So I kind of prefaced it with that boxing is life. You know, life is, is a fight kind of concept. So it could be extrapolated to other sports as well, daily life. But in academia, we say that mental toughness can be broken down into really these four or five concepts, which is control, challenge, commitment, confidence, and, and coping. And there's coping, there's stress management, right? And this is the whole academic kind of side of things. And to try to, to try to break that down into a very practical way can be a diff- a difficult task, right? So when we think of control, this is like your emotional and life control, your your faith in yourself, right? And your ability to to influence outcomes of things that happen in life. Um and then with challenge, it's like we talked about that definition of mental toughness, being able to face adversity and overcome the, the challenge. And commitment is you know being determined, persistence, think tenacity, right? I often use a, a, a concept, I haven't used it in boxing, but I remember using it with a, a high level tennis player um, to try to get them to, to conceptualize mental toughness was the FIT principle and not the FIT principle that we're accustomed to, such as F-I-T-T, but just FIT. And the last part of the T was tenacity, to try to have the individual, the athlete, remember to always be tenacious in their approach, commitment, right? Be a fierce competitor. Um, confidence is the, is the last one. And so that's your, your ability to achieve success in that, in that area of sport. And really that could be general life as well, because when we're talking about specific sport, that's more self-efficacy, right? So just overall confidence. And then that last one is coping which is really just stress management. right? So when we think of that, those to try to break that down with with an athlete in a short period of time, that could be a very challenging task, as I said. So we kind of back away from that. Although we teach that in the classroom and some of this stuff may come up, and it does come up naturally, organically in the training process, um, I do try to focus more on a practical side of mental toughness, which is really just what you mentioned, Chris, you mentioned that you hear a lot of people saying focus on mental toughness, focus on the, the sports psychology aspect of it. So that term focus is really the first part of mental toughness, your ability to maintain focus on something, right? So if you're the opponent in front of me, I need to be able to maintain focus on, on you, right? Now, there's specific things that I need to be looking at as a boxer, Maybe I shouldn't be looking specifically at your eyes. Maybe it's more related to your shoulders, and I'm focused on where the movement is being telegraphed from because the eyes can be deceiving in that particular sport. Um, So whatever the sport may be, you're focused on what it is you're supposed to be paying attention to, right? And when you pay attention to things, you have to be careful what you pay attention to because you're you're purchasing that experience with your most valuable currency, which is time. So if, if you're being distracted with things, right? You're going to get caught slipping. So you have to make sure that you're paying attention. You're, you're focused on the task at hand. And then the second part is your ability to act on that attention, right? Your ability to not just act. When I say action, a lot of times people think, well, reaction, that kind of goes with action, reaction, but a reaction is not always the best uh, method or the best route that we're looking for. Sometimes a reaction is a, is a poorly, developed habit, right? So a reaction can be something that's unfavorable. We, we prefer a response, right? A response to something that you're paying attention to. So your attention and your action at the end of the day really constitutes mental toughness. And that's a good starting point with individuals.
0: I think how you explain that is phenomenal. How I, how I am interpreting it as one should coach it. It's not so much like something you can preach as a textbook form, but perhaps your methodology of how you approach training. And this this might look like if I'm training a baseball player, the second they come to the weight room, they're focused. Like they better not be on their phone. They better be not distracted, eliminating uh, outside distractions like it is game time and they need to focus on training. Is that, is it more so methodology and coaching versus like teaching someone? Uh, I guess in that aspect, does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it does make sense. And I think it's, it's highly dependable on the individual as well. So, some guys are just naturally like they show up and, and they find their sweet spot. They're ready to work. And it's it's a, an easy task to train them. And then there's other individuals that they're on their phone. They're, they're distracted all the time. And, and to be able to observe that and recognize that and tweak it in such a way that you can kind of minimize those habits. I think that's where a good coach comes in comes into play because at the end of the day whether you're an exercise physiologist working with general population trying to improve their body composition and get a little bit of weight loss and improve their health or if you're working with a high performing athlete right you have to be able to to modify behavior at the end of the day that's what that's what coaches are they're, they're behavior modifiers in a sense and so you have to be able to get into the individual's headspace and motivate them inspire them otherwise you're just the average run-of-the-mill trainer. So I would would agree with that, that minimizing those distractions is key because distraction is the killer of performance. If I'm distracted every five seconds, I'm going to keep catching a punch, right? Going back to the boxing concept. If I'm distracted, I'm not going to be hearing what the coach is telling me from the corner. I'm actually listening and distracted to everyone else and what they're saying. So yeah, distraction is the killer of performance. And this is where we get into the concept, Chris, of, of playing in the moment, right? So if, if you're thinking about the point you just lost or thinking about how I'm going to get that point back, right, and you're not playing in the moment, you're not responding right to the attention that you're giving, you're not responding to, this, to the stimuli, then you're not playing in the moment and you're, you're likely being distracted by the past or the future.
0: I think that is a a great example that a lot of people that can connect with because a lot of the times uh, it was exer I forget the name of the course, but it was the only psychology course that I was required to take a part of my track, uh, exercise uh, and health psychology or sport psychology. It may have
2: been been sports psych.
0: Yeah. Exercise in sports psych or just it was sports psych. And that was something that they were really trying to focus on was if there was a bad thing that happened, if you missed a play, like getting that thought out, focus on like, okay, if you, if you missed a rebound or if you missed a three, like think about how you're the fastest one that can get back to play defense I think Dr. Martinez
1: too. Like the the, one of my best phrases that I've ever heard is, "The best athletes have the shortest memory." Like if you screw up, it's not about focusing on what just happened. It's focusing on hey the next play, and then the next play, and then the next play, or the next shot. Um, Those individuals that have the shortest memory and can forget about the past and just focus on the present play, Hmm. those individuals are easily separated.
2: And I, I like that. I like that concept, and and I think that comes natural to some people. And to others, it may be more difficult to kind of get back to that. Oh, I'll just brush it off and keep going, right? Some wow. people they they stay stuck in the past, or or how to how to um, get the, get the point back.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what what kind of techniques or what kind of strategies are utilizing for yourself, for your um, your clients, or even individuals that are in the classroom? How are you trying to instill that within them? If you hey you had a bad test score. Hey, it's not the end of the world. You still got three of them. Or, Hey, like you said, maybe you missed a serve. What are you trying to maybe paraphrase or put that in their mind that, Hey, it's not about what, what happened before. It's about the next play or what's going on that you can control right now.
2: Yeah. So I do that in, in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's, it's, you know, at the beginning of a session, sometimes it's at the cool down of a session intertwined with training I will definitely incorporate certain things to try to improve mental toughness, right? And and try to improve on uh, habits and and produce favorable habits and try to get rid of the the negative habits. So there's that aspect of the training part of it. I I think a coach should be including these mental toughness concepts on the daily in their training sessions. Um, I use these podcasts sometimes and send the link to them and say, listen to this one. So that way I don't have to spend time lecturing individuals on mental toughness. When I know that someone may need it, um, I tell them or not necessarily even need it, but just will help optimize their, their uh, approach to the game. So well, check this out, listen to this and tell me what you think about it. And so we plant the seeds through the teaching process, right? Um, you guys have in the podcast here, you're, you, you're teachers now. You're out there teaching the world. So and and that's what we do as exercise scientists. We we teach whether we're training individuals. We're still teaching them at the end of the day. So I like to use the the academic side of things and and still deliver content to them in an educational way, but also incorporate it into the training process.
1: No, I totally agree with all of what you just said that we're educators and even coaches. Right. We're just trying to take an athlete to an individual place that they haven't been able to take themselves um, but I think you made That's a really right. good point that right? Um, you try to instill some type of environment that we can control, but the sometimes the athletes only with us maybe one to two hours a day. not really sure how mm-hmm. how frequently um, you are with your athletes being in boxing and MMA and stuff like that. but what type of environmental cues are you trying to instill in the athlete as well to help them when they're not with you?
2: So more kind of academic Um, research side of things. And and this really isn't, this could be very applied as well. But sometimes I'll take individuals into the lab and put them on a device known as the neurotracker. I think you're familiar with the neurotracker, right? So you have this 3D space and you're supposed to track objects over time and you're supposed to keep attention to it and and act on it. Um, So we use that. But then in, in addition to that, sometimes we'll provide a stimulus such as you know, a Bluetooth speaker and put on some heckling right in the background to try to get them distracted. Or sometimes I'll interject and do certain things to try to throw them off their game. Right. And try to get them to break to, to break their attention. So we do that in the lab using kind of background noise and audience kind of uh, noise, you know, crowd noise that as a distraction. Um, so that's one academic way of doing things in the lab that we've done. But you see this being done in, in practice uh, football stadiums, right? So they'll, they'll blast over the over the crowd booze and things like that to try to get that element to create that environment for individuals. So that way, when they experience it, it's not completely new to them. Same concept as, as driving a car. So the first time Adam or Chris, that you drove a car, it was likely a pretty challenging experience, and you didn't know how to kind of how much gas to give, when when to pump the brakes properly, how much to turn the wheel. It could be a bit of a challenging task at 15 years of age, 16 years of age, right? So once you do that a few times, oh well, then you're starting to gain confidence in that space, right? You've been exposed to that stress, you've been exposed to that stimulus. Nowadays, you drive from here to Orlando. And you forget everything in between. You were blasting the radio. You were talking on the phone. um, You know, you were checking Facebook, Instagram, whatever, which you shouldn't be doing. But you did all that and navigated your way through traffic and didn't even remember any of it because it wasn't even stressful for you because you've done it so much. It's second nature to you. And that's where we want to get athletes to where it's second nature to them that, oh, I've been here. I've done this. And there's always going to be those moments to where they haven't been there and they haven't done it, but we want to build that confidence within them to say, Oh, this is new, but I have enough self-efficacy. I have enough confidence in this space to overcome the challenge, no matter what new thing is thrown at me. So
0: we keep mentioning like stress and stress in higher stress situations. What is a good, is that, is that good? Do you want to decrease it? Is that something that you could possibly increase to help performance or what's your insight on stress and how it can impact performance?
2: Yeah. So it's, it's a sweet spot type of situation and it does depend on the activity. If I'm a sharpshooter, I don't want too much adrenaline, right? I don't want too much sympathetic nervous system activation, I should have the right amount and I don't know what that amount is for a sharpshooter, but I would imagine there's, there's some level. Um, but I know that there is a lot of breathing and breath control and certain timing of pulling the trigger for a sharpshooter. So having too much sympathetic nervous system activation for that individual would be counterproductive, right? Um, for a boxer that's getting ready to go put their life on the line We can't have them too flat. We can't have them too rested up right before a fight to where they come out and their feet are heavy and they're not moving well. And we also can't have them with their knees shaking to where they don't feel their legs under them because they're too stressed out about what they're getting ready to to go do, right? So there's a sweet spot within that sport, obviously. So there may be times that the coach notices well, we need a little bit of movement because movement will ease tension a little bit. And so maybe they're hitting mitts or maybe we do a dynamic warmup to kind of ease some of that tension. Or the individual could be so lackadaisical that it's like, no, we need to pick the speed up. We need to increase their sympathetic nervous system activation. So there is a sweet spot. Um, and, I, and I think it's important to be able to recognize what that is for your particular sport. Uh, powerlifting, right? You have to be able to, to have a good amount of adrenaline going Before you get under that bar, you can't be too flat. Now, what we don't want to do is have too much stress to where the mind, right, is being hijacked and fear is starting to overwhelm the individual. So, with stress, there's typically fear. But when we can control that fear, right, when we could reduce the amount of of uh, spiraling out of control that the mind is being hijacked from the sympathetic nervous system activation. When we can control that, now we have a superpower. We're, we're jacked up and we're focused and that's what we want within that sweet spot.
0: So a big control of responding to stress is of course, it sounds like the nervous system and being, uh, being able to identify how you should tailor Your nervous system, but also it goes back to the mental toughness side, which is really just trying to stay focused, controlled, uh, and some of the, some of the other, uh, what were the other ones you said? Focus,
2: controlled. Yeah. So the, the practical side would really just be focusing on those, those two of, of focus and, and responding. Responding.
0: Yeah. Instead of reacting, uh, which I think instead of reacting. Yeah. Which is really beneficial. Um, what, what are some tasks that you can, or some things you can implement to help in obviously like timeouts, but like, how can you coach someone to respond to stress better or realize what is going on with their body and that they need to either dial it back or dial it forward? It, does that make sense? Yeah. So
2: yeah, totally. Um, so th- there's two parts of the stress response, right? And so there's 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 a stress model that you can kind of uh, conceptualize, which is like you have this initial stimulus, right? That stimulus then results in some perception of that situation. You perceive it either favorably or unfavorably. That's where we kind of have that that you stress or distress response. Um, from there, you have an emotional response, either good or bad and then you have a physical response, and then ultimately you have an outcome to that, right? But there's two ways of addressing this stress response, and it would be uh, physiologically and psychologically. So physiologically, we can consider breath work, right? So breathing techniques that can reduce sympathetic nervous system activation, or breathing techniques that can induce a sympathetic nervous system response, whatever is needed for that particular individual at that particular time. Most of the times we're talking about reducing the stress response though, right? So just a basic five second in five second out, three second in three second out breathing protocol can reduce the stress response. In addition to that, we use breath holds. And so that can really lower the heart rate very quickly. And when we do breath holds for five to eight seconds, and we do certain repetitions of those that can kind of bring the individual out of that state of fear So they, they do a few repetitions of breath holds and they come out of that situation or that, that rep scheme. And they're like, oh, wow, I totally forgot what I was just even thinking about or what I was concerned with. Right. So it can, it can help in that way. And then the physical stuff can be, um, well, that's, that is sort of physical. It plays into, into the mental, but we can also have this, you know, relaxation response such as autogenic training, um, to where individuals are are doing certain techniques, whether it's contracting and and relaxing certain muscle groups, and they go through the whole body to try to have this physical relaxation response, induce that response. So there's there's those ways in the physical realm, right? And then within the the psychological realm, it's it's really a, a trick of getting the individual to kind of get back into that moment, playing in the moment, not thinking about the past, not thinking about the future. But when we do have those negative thoughts to recognize that it's, it's our friend showing up to show us, hey, uh, this is the worst case scenario, right? Whatever that worst case scenario is, whether it's in football, whether it's in powerlifting, whether it's in soccer, whether it's in bodybuilding or boxing, doesn't matter. Um, in everyday life, whatever the worst case scenario is, we don't want to dwell in that space to dwell is like a, is like a home, a dwelling is a home. And when you dwell with thoughts, you're making that part of your essence. And you don't want to sit there with those thoughts because ultimately you're going to create that experience, right? So you can thank that thought for being present and showing you what the worst case scenario is, but you need to shift out of that and get back into the moment of something positive and and wanting to, to perform at the highest level.
1: You know, so I, you had made a comment on one of the books that I uh, had read quite some time ago. It was called The Upside of Stress. And it very frequently, when I was reading that book, it brought me to a couple of your lectures in stress management. How, right, if a negative thought comes into mind, thank that thought, appreciate that thought, and understand, Mm -hmm. right, your body's response to this thought or this stress is priming you for whatever is about to happen. But I think a lot of individuals, we're taught that stress is bad or we're taught that we need to shift down that response. And in essence, that could actually have a negative downplay to what we're about to happen. But I think a lot of this is right. Almost an experience range is right. The more exposure I get to it, as you said, the more and more I get comfortable being uncomfortable, the more likely I'm going to be successful in whatever situation you have. And I think that is what true confidence brings, but I always and in, 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 I've always asked you this question. Um, what are your thoughts of purposely giving an individual, uh, I guess, a challenge that you know they might not be successful in just to, again, put them in that uncomfortable situation and see how they respond after the fact?
2: Yeah, so experiencing failure, whether it's underneath a bar or whether it's in a in a agility task um, or in some type of competition. Um, it builds character, right? So I think that's, it's an important part of developing the individual's character, because at the end of the day, your character is, is what's most important. So your ability to to celebrate your wins, and also to to recognize where you can improve and adjust from your losses is, is a game changer, right? So the, the individual who's negative and is always kind of siding toward, oh, well, that was so and so's fault. And this that and always making excuses rather than adjusting, owning it right, and 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 improving their their situation from that, they're they're not going to optimize their performance if they're always making excuses. So, I like the idea of of not necessarily experiencing failure for a uh, in, in a repetitive routine type of way, but to get touches with those experiences is important. That's how we build confidence. Just going back to the. The driving experience we've made a lot of mistakes right we probably hit a few cars along the way maybe a mailbox or two um hopefully we don't do that anymore because we've kind of experienced those those losses what's that chris still does
1: <laughs> yeah he, his license was res- suspended for i think uh the whole master's degree because he hit quite a few mailboxes but we're all good now he's got Which nice- i don't
0: get i didn't hit it with my car i hit it with a baseball bat but whatever i whatever <laughs> anyway,
2: different story. Yeah. Different conversation We so,
1: don't do that in Florida, Chris. Huh? You don't do that in Florida, Chris.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a Michigan thing. My bad. Um, but you know,
1: I think Dr. Martinez, one of the biggest uh or one of the more phrases that always stuck with me the first time I sat in one of your lectures was once you're able to understand life is hard, that take care of itself. But when an individual, or let's say like an individual has yet to kind of build character as somebody is still stuck in the, the, the trenches and not able to get out. And you've done almost everything you can, can do or thought you could have done for that individual. What, in your experience, what is next for that individual? Are you kind of almost saying, sitting down and talking and say, hey, this is what's happened. This is what we tried. What's going on? Or are you just kind of just letting go and they'll figure it out eventually? Because we've always had those clients that, right, we can't do the work for them as much as we want it, we can't want it as bad or more That's than right. the individual that has to work. But what are you trying mm-hmm. to instill or after numerous times of maybe delivering the same message just in a different way, what are you – I guess what's the next step that you would take?
2: So with someone that has grasped the techniques well and they're, they're doing well with it or they seem to be struggling with it, which, which one?
1: Yeah, yeah, they're continuously – we've continuously – try to portray a message maybe in you know, three different ways, but they still can't grasp it. And now I guess we are at loss for him. What what approach would you take from that individual?
2: Yeah. So um I like that you remembered the concept of of life being hard. And once we accept that that universal truth that life is hard, we it becomes easier, right? And not the sense that it's it's a downhill ride, but it, we become more efficient with it that experience that we have with recognizing that life is hard, we're able to, to kind of navigate these waters more economically. And so I, I love that that you remember that and brought that up. That's actually from the, the Road Less Traveled book, right? So I, I always carry that with me. And I, I typically preface that um, with a lot of guys in the, the mental toughness training aspect. And obviously, that's an everyday type of life situation that people should be grasping right now that life is hard. It is hard. And nobody said it was going to be easy. Um, and once we recognize that, it becomes it becomes we become more efficient with navigating those waters again. And I think that's extremely important because we live in a society nowadays which tends to be very weak. Right. And so we, we need to strengthen our character. We need to strengthen our mental toughness. Um, that concept of vitamin grit, which I often use. Right. Um, so individuals to get back to your question. Um, that maybe are not grasping what we're, they're not taking what we're putting out, right? They, they're not really hearing it, and we've kind of tried multiple ways. Maybe we're not the coach for that individual. So some sometimes it just may not be the the chemistry between you and that individual may not be there. You may just not be the person for them, for whatever reason. Um, so sometimes a change in environment can help with an individual and inspire them to kind of get back on track if they're an athlete and we need to make sure that they're competing at a high level. So we have to recognize when it's time to withdraw and say, well, you know, go find someone else and not be, and not have that affect our ego as well. Does that, does that kind of answer part of it?
0: Yeah, I think no, that,
1: that. that reminds it very well. is some of the aspects. I think that's why an assistant coach, Um, Is very important or just having a circle of individuals that you can kind of refer to um, to maybe Mm. just hear it or be able to relate it a little bit better for that individual. So finally, maybe it clicks. But I think you hit it on the head, too, for me personally or whoever the coach, main coach may be to not take it personally, because, right, we might just not bond well or we just might not be a great fit for each other. Just any relationship.
2: Yeah. And and I think part of it, too, if I've exhausted. if, I, if i've exhausted my resources for the mental and the in the physical side i do consider some of the the spiritual aspects of of sport because in sport you have to be you have to play a lot of sports psychologists will say you have to play in the spirit meaning you know depending on how you're doing today you could be in good spirits you could be in bad spirits you could be in meh kind of spirits right hopefully when you're competing you're in high spirits you're at a high level you feel good affect affective valence is high Right. So individuals that maybe are not playing in the spirit or when they're training, they don't seem to be in good spirits. They, they could be undergoing something known as cognitive dissonance. So they may be showing up and they may be saying, yeah, dude, I'm ready to work. But in reality, they're not right. So their actions don't match what their belief or what their vision is. They may have a vision. They may have an idea of what they want to do in their sport but their actions are not matching that. And so that's where people are are actually encountering a spiritual problem known as cognitive dissonance that can happen in sport, it can happen in life. So I do try to kind of recognize that as well. And if that's happening and have those those deeper conversations with individuals on how to kind of um, respond to that.
0: Do you have any other further questions on that topic, Adam?
1: No, I just would want to hit on a point that I think going into that conversation with your client or or player will open up a better relationship with them because it shows them that you you just don't care for them as a player or as that individual that's trying to get a dub. Um, And hopefully after that conversation, that relationship takes on another challenge and is able to bond and succeed elsewhere. Um, But I think that's a really great point that you always, you always have to understand what the outside environment um, is going on for whomever you're uh, associated with,
0: something I'm extremely. Go ahead, Dr. Martinez. Before I go into that,
2: oh, it was really nothing of of substance. I was just going to say, also, uh, having that conversation can open up, as Adam says, uh, a box of worms.
1: <laughs> a box of worms. Yeah, that, that was a weird phrase. My bad,
2: y'all. <laughs>
0: That's going to be one that we continue to reference. I'm never going to let that I one like go. It. Uh, but yeah, so. program, programming considerations, going more so on the actual physical training side, what are some major program considerations for fighters? Who are, obviously, all training is very sports specific, but I, I think I can speak for me and Adam on this, where we neither, neither one of us have focused on uh, fighters for programming.
2: Relative to, to programming for, for an athlete, for a boxer, you were saying, combat athlete?
0: yeah and what are just some like key things uh i guess is it considered a rotational sport uh i guess depending on the sport boxing versus like more of an mma approach there's going to be a lot more groundwork so you might have to take a different training style is is footwork something that's big a part of it or what are some key principles a part of the training yeah
2: and so here, here's where, again, I think you can kind of get into almost any sport where boxing can carry over to any sport because you can have an individual where um, you cross-train into boxing, right? A lot of times football players will, will cross-train into boxing. Um, a lot of other sports will do that as well, right? Do, do you hear the dog barking? Is, oh. Yeah, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to it's, be a it's problem. It's not
0: that bad, though. It's not that bad. We're, okay, we're, trust ho- me, we've, ho- we've had cats. We've had uh, tons of different (laughs) animals. And my dog is always making a mess around me right now. So.
2: Okay. All right. So what I like to do is consider whether it's a boxer, whether it's a power lifter, whether it's a a soccer player, general population, it doesn't matter. I like to view the body as a machine. Right. And I like to look at that machine and what, what are the biomechanical and what are the bio bioenergetic demands of that particular sport? So understanding what those demands are because that demand is a stress. That stress results in some type of adaptation. So looking at what, which ways, what are the most favorable ways to facilitate the adaptation that we want? What kind of stress can we give the individual? What's needed, right? So I like to look at it from that perspective. This is where my philosophical approach, anyone's philosophical approach to training sort of begins. How are you looking at the athlete? How do you want to train them? Um, My academic side says, well, take biomechanics with me in the classroom and do a kinesiological analysis on your favorite sport, because then you're going to dive into that realm and reality of that of that particular sport and what the demands are for it. Right. And so doing a needs analysis for the for the sport is important as well. So looking at the body as a machine, what are the demands of it? I like to consider our exercise science laws, so Wolf's law, Davis's law, right? So how bone and muscle will remodel based on its imposed demand. Adam probably is tired of hearing me say that in the classroom. Uh, your said principle, right? So specific adaptations to imposed demand. Although we can cross train into other areas, we should be training athletes within the, the realm that they're, they're competing in, right? If it's a, uh, a shot putter, maybe I shouldn't be bowling with them on a daily basis to train that particular movement pattern. Um, And then there's also the whole concept of safety, effectiveness, efficiency. So considering that a safe athlete, if if our training programs are safe and keeping them from injury, well, we're, we're doing our job because an injured athlete isn't a competing athlete, right? And in the sport of boxing, that's typically why they're being brought to us is because they're trying to offset all the sparring that's been done throughout history in the sport to really get the individual's fitness up to where it needs to be. A lot of sparring is done, but 70% of the injuries in that sport come through sparring, both musculoskeletal injuries and brain injuries. So we try to avoid that, right, as much as possible and offset that, or at least that's where the sport is going now. Some guys, they still love gym wars, right? And they love to go in there and, and, uh, get their, their hands dirty with sparring, but there's, you take damage each time. Those are many car accidents that you encounter each time you step into the ring. So you have to be uh, cognizant of that. And then obviously um, the fit principle, right? So frequency, intensity, time, and type and how we're, we're training those individuals, considering those, those variables.
0: So growing up, I was always under the consideration of having to make weight. Right. And that's something that you experience with all the time with your fighters. I'm sure and even power lifters, everyone needs to focus on their weight for specific weight classes. However, with what you just said, one of the biggest program considerations is injury prevention and making sure the athlete is safe. How does, we'll go into like different water cutting protocols, but like, how does the nutrition side ultimately impact these individuals that need to actually fuel themselves for example, like drinking water like consistently. However, you're trying to make weight, you're taking water away. Like you're trying to actually get it out of your body. So like, how are these things conflicting or what are some things, some best methods? Cause like I said, when I was, when I was younger, my parents didn't have a strength coach for me. So what they did for me was, okay, I'm going to trash bag, do the old fashioned method, start chewing on gum, spitting, not eat for a day. Uh, and just keep going to the bathroom, et cetera, et cetera. try to get all the water out. What do you mm-hmm. see fighters doing now for like best practices? Is it the same thing?
2: well it's it still varies. in in the sport of boxing, you still have the individuals that have their time tested methods, right versus the newer school of of thought and some of the science that's out there relative to weight cuts and water cuts. So depending on, the training camp, depending on the head trainer, which we call, you know, the captain, they're they're the captain of the ship. So sometimes they give you full autonomy to say, okay, we'll go ahead and do this with the fighter. Whereas other times are like, no, 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 this is how I've always done it. And this is how it's going to be done. And so when you have uh, a captain that has had experience and built world champions, there ain't no way in heck, you're going to question that captain's right. Directive. Um, but when you get the autonomy to do it and you feel comfortable that your your um, protocol is safe, effective and efficient, well, then you implement it. Right. And um, yeah, so th- there's definitely the old school ways of doing things like you mentioned the, you know, the sauna suit, which I hate, not a fan of.
0: No, I- it was terrible, man. Like looking back at it, I don't know why I would do it like who expected. I lived in Michigan. So I guess Florida weather is way worse, but like whoever thought like, let's put a trash bag on and go for like a three mile run. Like that, that does not sound yeah. fun. Like, um, yeah.
2: So it's not fun. And and there's, there's times where I've had, um, athletes that, that have used it, obviously boxers that have, that have used it. Um, not the trash bag, but the actual sauna suit, it's almost like a wet suit material, just a whole lot thicker. Um, and so they've, been accustomed to doing it and I've allowed them to do it. Well, not allowed them to do it. I, I don't encourage them to do it, but if they feel comfortable on a camp, I don't want to, sometimes I don't like to create everything new under the sun, especially when you step into a new environment with an athlete, you, you want to kind of uh, incorporate some of the things that they've been doing because it makes them feel comfortable. There's some familiarity there. Um, but the sauna suit is while, while it's effective uh, for dropping water, or dropping weight as well, it's, um, it's dangerous. Right. So one, it's dangerous, especially in Florida to kind of carry that heavier load. Right. And, and we live in a humidity bubble here, so we can get some really nice physiological adaptations out here in Tampa. So if you're a combat athlete and you want to, uh, train, come, come see me down here in Tampa, because we have a great, humidity bubble, and we get some good adaptations, but I'm not going to put you in a sauna suit, right? That's just not my thing. So one, it's dangerous. Two, there's potential decrements in performance because when you overheat the system too close to competition, you're going to reduce central nervous system drive. So whether it's a sauna suit or whether it's a sauna, which I don't like saunas either, I don't use them. Sometimes the athlete will say, well, no, I feel comfortable doing it. I'm not. I can't say that. I've used it one once or twice. Right? We have had to use it once or twice, um, but I always try to avoid it at all costs because I know that I'm going to get some central nervous system uh, decrements out of it, and I don't want that. Right? So the sauna suit, the uh, the spitting that can be fine. Right? So the spitting that the the the, the, uh, the dump of water through Jolly Ranchers or gum or just spitting nonstop throughout the day that that can be somewhat helpful. I'm not anti that. What are some
0: other, or what, what is, if you have someone that's completely open to whatever method you're going to say, what water cutting protocol are you going to give for them to meet their weight class?
2: Yeah. So typically what's, what's happening nowadays is whether it's MMA or whether it's, um, boxing guys will drop significant water weight to drop to a lower weight class and compete at that weight class and the night before the fight rehydrate and come in significantly larger than what they weighed in at the night before. Um, the problem with that is that, well, one, everybody's doing it right. So, um, it's now it's a situation of, well, whose method is better. Who's, who's not reducing their strength or power or central nervous system drive as much as the opponent is depending on what they're doing. Um, but then you, you may also have guys that compete in and around that weight class. No matter what, they're they're kind of the rarity. So if I'm a 135er and I walk around at 140, right, and so I, all I have to do is lose a little bit of water weight, five pounds, versus someone that weighs 155 and they have to do a 20 pound water weight cut, right, and they're going through all that weight loss to do it. And there's a lot of hardship that they go through what's what's happening to the the body at that point the organs of the body the the kidneys being taxed each subsequent fight that they do that they're losing all that water that can be long term can be maladaptive to the system um it could be maladaptive short term as well so we have to consider those things i everyone's doing it everyone's Uh,
0: losing weight, some people are having to do it at a more, a larger extreme than others, which of course they're going to see more, uh, decrements because of it. What your recommendation for athletes to do in that situation then?
2: So as one is, is to not have to lose too much. So we like to stay between five to 10% of body weight, right? Like that's, what's preferred. So you shouldn't be dropping really more than that. So that's a good starting point. And typically a a camp is about six to eight weeks, right? And so a six to eight week camp to drop a a few pounds of fat here and there, you're already starting within five to 10% of your weight class. And, and we want to obviously facilitate fat oxidation throughout the entire training camp. So that means eating a good amount of poly and monounsaturated fats, right? And so you're facilitating fat oxidation, you're eating more fat. And um, so so we definitely like to do that in addition to the aerobic uh, training part of things that will facilitate fat oxidation as well. So we like to lose the proper amount of fat, and then whatever is needed at the end have a small water cut. And the water cut, you know, there's different ways of doing it and not to get into too much of a prescription for water weight cuts um here today that that's something that i kind of do more on an individual basis and sometimes involve um nutritionists when when they need to be but at the end of the day you know uh, hyperhydration is is a form that's often used like a week out from the competition so increasing water intake and then after increasing water intake for a very short period of time approximately a week out We start to reduce the water intake each subsequent day thereafter leading up until the day that you have to step on the scale and meet your contracted weight. So oftentimes you'll see guys to where maybe they're just having a small amount of water the day of of the weigh-in, sipping on water, sipping on Pedialyte to ensure that their electrolyte balance is, is where it needs to be and they don't feel too much lethargy right going into competition.
1: Now, is it true that a lot of, um, of these combat sports are starting to test for water cuts or they're starting to ban them? Is that correct?
2: Well, I'm not sure about MMA. Boxing, I have not, I have not been aware of any kind of promotional company or, or sanctioning body that's, that's uh, reducing water cuts. Now, you do have, you do have medicals. Right, The day before a fight and, the, and sometimes the day of a fight to where they test your heart rate. Um, they put you through a very short bout of exercise and the individual needs to demonstrate that they're in good homeostasis, that their physiological measures are not all over the place. Doctors can recognize when something is awry and they may not give you a, uh, the green light to fight if they notice that you're severely dehydrated. So they they check they check, right, um, for certain physiological measures. But I'm not aware of anything that would prevent an individual from doing a weight cut. So that's, boxing.
0: that's something that I actually was about to ask as well. Because, uh, like I said, I grew up wrestling, and another individual that's a strength coach, uh, a friend of mine, they wrestled as well, but they wrestled in a different state, and where they wrestled at they were actually required to get their, their uh, what, what's the term I'm looking for? Their, their water level, their hydration level, hydration percentage, or something that identified how hydrated they were going into the weigh-ins. And if they weren't meeting X amount of hydration it, at the weigh-in, it disqualified them for their weight. So that's actually interesting uh, point that Adam brought up that I didn't think of until he said that but it looks like with the major organizations it doesn't seem like it's it's a thing yet or maybe it won't be
1: yeah I don't remember uh, James um, I from our class he had mentioned that they're starting to get a little more strict with that um, and dr. Martinez I it was it last week or two weeks ago that the individual that was um, on UFC, he couldn't even walk to his scale. Like he had to literally be carried to that. Um, So what are your thoughts on that? Or was that just that a severe of a a water cut that that's what has led him to where he's at right now?
2: Yeah. So it's unfortunate when you see that happen, Um, it could be a variety of things. And I'm not sure who that individual was or what the, the reason for them kind of fainting or falling out. Was um, it could have been related to, to food deprivation? It could have been related to water deprivation, it could have been fear. I don't know, but we can assume that it was likely due to some type of deprivation of substance, right? Food or water. Um, that's not a good sign relative to the training camp to get the individual prepared for that particular moment because it kind of shows that they had to go through a, a severe cut. This is why um, you should have these kind of rules on the first day. Don't step into training camp five to 10% above your contracted weight because you're going to have problems, right? Um, So I think there's certain guidelines that, that need to be established. So the maintenance phase in between fights, the maintenance phase in between powerlifting competitions, because I've worked with power, uh, powerlifting athletes as well for water cuts, primarily females. Right, but nonetheless, I've worked in the sport, um, and that's always a fun sport to do water cuts. for I do them the same way. I do them the same way I do them for boxers. It's been a while since I did it for a power lifting athlete, but they're they're fun because you got you get to see a different realm. And the the two times that I've done it, I've actually had the individual um, hit their their PRs. Right, so it's it was a nice rewarding kind of feeling.
1: At the end, I think at the end of the day, like you said, you be proactive in your approach so it doesn't have to be so severe that it kicks your ass and you're not able to respond or be able to perform at that level that you need to be performing. Because I, I mean, I've had a negative consequence where I have had to drop 15 pounds, and that was just me being a butthead um, and playing around way before I should have. So um, you definitely. Mm-hmm experience the losses uh, of the performance. So I think, like you said, the most important message from it is making sure you're proactive and setting yourself up or periodizing your nutrition leading up to your competition
0: date, for sure.
2: Yeah, nutritional periodization is is an important concept that I think uh, these athletes that compete year long need to need to conceptualize. It's not just, oh, I take a break, and I eat all this fast food, and I drink all this, these different beverages and then i start camp again no right. as long as you're an athlete you're an athlete you need to be maintaining properly right so that way you don't have to go through this grueling process every every time again these subsequent training camps in which individuals have to drop a significant amount of weight tax their organs to to make the contracted weight at the end of the at the end of the, the training camp will ultimately result in some type of disorder or dis-ease for that individual in the long-term. You, you could ruin your metabolic system by having these large weight fluctuations right throughout an entire career. We've seen it happen with individuals to where they just can't lose weight no more. I mean, they can lose weight, but it's not as efficient, nowhere as efficient as it used to be. And as you get older too, that, that kind of draws uh, challenges as well.
1: Another question, though, following up, right, UK, you are 24 hours out, you've done the water cut, you've made your weight class. Now you have that 24 hours to just either, I guess, maybe eat like a butthole or, you know, just like you said, eat at a sufficient amount of food. But what other aspects are you trying to prioritize those 24 hours out? Because, right, your goal, at least mine in particular, is, okay, let's one, become hydrated. Let's see how much weight we can kind of, you know, replenish um, in due time, but what other aspects are you trying to pay attention to 24 hours out uh, of competition after weigh-ins?
2: So there's a, there's a few, and that's actually one of the, the, it's all fun. Like the, the weight cuts are all fun. Um, but the rehydration is, is kind of, uh, a, a, and also a very fun period for me. Um, cause I have my little tricks of the trade, right? I'm not going to reveal too much today, but, maybe we'll work together. You could send some people my way and I can help them out, but I'll, I'll reveal a little bit of what I do. Um, so I think it's important to consider when you're, when you're putting that weight back on, right. That you're actually moving that water through the compartments of the body. And it's just not stagnant, right? You're leading up to competition. So for a power lifter, although you may not be going into the gym the night before, Right, you're not going into the gym the night before a lift, are you? After you've rehydrated? No, you're not. You're yeah, not I touching heavy weight. Honestly,
1: oh. No, I honestly, for me particularly, whenever I've done a water cut, um, or even the week out of a meet, the last two to three days that I, I have not trained, I'll hit openers maybe two to three days out. Um, but other than that, I'm not touching weight again because those last couple of days are usually pretty grueling in itself on the last couple of days of the uh, the
2: mm-hmm. water cut. Yeah. So nonetheless, though, you you know, when you're doing a a bench press or you're doing a deadlift or you're doing a squat, that's those are full body movements. Those are compound multi-joint movements. Right. So it's going to require every part of your body to generate force from the toes to the to the top. Okay. Um, Water is pulled out of bone whenever you do a water cut. That's why guys break their hands a lot of times. Right. That's why the the brain is so in such a critical spot when these guys do water cuts because they're they're moving compartments of water in out of the body. And so when you put that water back in, you want to make sure that it's moving back into those compartments as well. So for a boxer it's, it's critical. It's critical to their to their health. Um for a powerlifting athlete to me it would, and I've, I've advised this. And when I've worked with individuals, it tends to work out pretty well. Um, I advise that they have some kind of dynamic movement, not that they're going on long distance aerobic runs. We don't want to do that because you're going to decrease power, but maybe there's some kind of dynamic stretching protocol and an individual likes to do, um, or the coach likes to do following intake of water and take food to move you know, those electrolytes to move that nutrition, to move that fluid throughout the body. So that's one thing to consider, right? Obviously people have their supplementation protocols and things that they like to do to kind of, um, you know, get ready for competition. And there's different things that that can be considered there. Um, I think that's a common thing
0: that you said though, like the dynamic stretching, dynamic movements. I know from uh, since i started my masters something that i've noticed is doing like like you said i think that was the first time i've heard it put like that is moving the nutrition through your body as needed so specifically for bodybuilders it's really important for you to properly peak so that your muscles are as full as possible however there's a lot of people out here like cycling water and doing all these things with electrolytes when really it's just very important to keep the body in homeostasis so that you actually look how you should look but simply doing very light full body exercising like a full body circuit very lightly not where it's strenuous or hard or yeah nothing strenuous yeah yeah but enough just to get the nutrients going to that muscle because you are using it uh i think 100%. that's yeah. I think that's a really good way that you put it. And I appreciate it because now that I think is going to be a way that I explain it to people is just moving the nutrition through your body to make sure everything is in homeostasis.
2: Yeah, I, I like that that breakdown.
0: Yeah. Most importantly though, uh, we just wanted to say thank you for coming onto our podcast. Tell our listeners where they're able to find you or your coaching or your services.
2: Well, um, I'm in Tampa, so if you if you're ever in Tampa and you want to train, you could definitely hit me up um, on Instagram. My my professional page is Nick Mars Ph.D. So N-I-C-M-A-R-S-P-H-D. Ph.D. And my professional page on um, Facebook is also Nick Mars Ph.D.
0: All right. And I appreciate that. Like, like we said, thank you for your time. I know it's, it's sometimes busy, but
2: if I you're appreciate both of you, thanks for having me.
0: No problem. If you guys need this gentleman's help, he's extremely intelligent. If you're a fighter, if you're needing someone for water cutting protocols, reach out to him. He's a master jack of all trades, master of all as well. <laughs> thank you. And that was all the smoke with Dr. Martinez.